Nothing on the Bonnell Foundation's Living with Cystic Fibrosis podcast should be considered medical advice. Medical advice can only come from your CF physician. Cystic fibrosis can be a devastating diagnosis, but living with the disease can bring positivity and a new appreciation for each day. From the Bonnell Foundation in Detroit, Michigan, it's the Living with Cystic Fibrosis podcast, sponsored by Beatrice, Genentech, and Vertex. Here's your host, Laura Bonnell. So Bernie Martin is a writer, she's a creative consultant, and most importantly, she is the mother of a CF fighter. And after 15 years working as a copywriter and creative director in some of Ireland's top advertising agencies, she started her own consultancy called The Salty Pen. She started that in 2018. And this move was born out of her desire to have more flexibility around caring for her little daughter, Eva who she describes as her muse, her strength, her drive, and her everything. Bernie has written about the challenges facing CF families on her blog, My Little Miss Salty, and she's written for the M Word and Mummy pages. She does a lot of volunteer work as a CF patient advocate in CHI Temple Street and as a campaigner during the Yes or Can Be campaign in 2016 and 2017. Bernie and her daughter Eva and her husband Dave, they all collaborated with the University of Notre Dame in the 100 episode of their long-running series, What Would You Fight For? In this case, the fight was for cystic fibrosis treatments, and it was actually just Bernie and Eva in that campaign, but Bernie's husband is Dave, and she has a son, Danny, who is 13 and does not have cystic fibrosis. So let's get to this wonderful Ireland interview. So thank you, Bernie, for joining us from Dublin, Ireland. It's great to have you on the Living with Cystic Fibrosis podcast. And I'm excited to share so much about you with our CF community here in America. Thank you for having me. It's a, it's an honor to come on and chat to you today. So um, I'm an open book. Anything you want to know? <laughs> thank you. And I guess, first of all, did you know that cystic fibrosis ran in your family? I know 28 years ago when my oldest was diagnosed, they had told us that the most common um, ethnicities that get, you know, are born with cystic fibrosis is Irish. That's my husband. And then Ashkenazi Jewish, which is me. I know it's different now because there are so many people underdiagnosed, people of color. But having said all that mouthful, did you know anything about CF at that time? So no, we didn't. It came as a total shock to us, to be honest, when our daughter was diagnosed with cystic fibrosis. Um, we already had one child and he had no health conditions and I was the youngest in my family. So both of my siblings had had children and no issues had shown up and there had never been anything on my husband's side either. Now there is a connection in my dad's family. So his cousin had two children with cystic fibrosis so I was vaguely aware of it, I suppose, on the outskirts of the family, but not close enough for it to be a real kind of uh, factor that I was aware of. And because there was absolutely nothing on my husband's side ever, um, it's not something that was on our radar. So we were really, really floored by it when we got the diagnosis. And isn't it interesting? We didn't have anything, but it was on the peripheral for you. And then once the diagnosis comes, I'm sure that's all you see, right? Exactly. When you get the diagnosis and you kind of rethink that connection, I suppose you nearly wonder, how are you not? 
more aware of it. But, um, you know, I suppose that family wasn't part of my life as such. I didn't particularly know them. And, you know, yourself, you're young, you're growing up, you're living your life. And unless somebody is kind of within your own world, you're not entirely aware of these things or of the risks necessarily when you start to have a family. I think unless something's very immediate, um, you kind of maybe just don't see it and afterwards wonder if you should have. But it, yeah, it it showed up for myself and my husband and subsequently, you know, he's the opposite to me. He's the eldest in his family. So some of his siblings have been tested since and discovered that they are also carriers, despite the fact that nothing has ever shown up on his side. So I suppose that side was the most shocking. Wow. Yeah. And did you find out which mutations you both had? Because I did and I was surprised I had the Delta F508. I thought I was going to have the other one that's like a bunch of numbers that's different. <laughs> we had the exact same experience. So we found out and because there was a connection on my side, I assumed that it was me that carried Delta F508, but it's actually my husband. Um, and I carried R560T, which is the rarer of the two genes that our daughter has. So again, the assumption there was completely wrong. Um, it was the opposite to what we expected when we started to learn about it. And tell us about Eva's diagnosis story. Like what age was she when she was diagnosed and how did you figure it out? So Eva was three and a half weeks old when she was diagnosed. So she was picked up through the newborn screening, which is done here, which in fairness, we were lucky in the sense that when my son was born, that screening program didn't exist in Ireland. So if he had to have had CF, he wouldn't have been automatically picked up through the screening Whereas almost three years later, that program had been introduced. So she was picked up through that. So she was three and a half weeks old. But to be perfectly honest, we knew there was something wrong from day five, I would say, because when we took her home from the hospital, um, the level of symptoms was off the charts. I just kept bringing her back into the maternity hospital and saying, there's something wrong with her. I need you to tell me what it is. I didn't know what it was. And again, now in hindsight, if I had known anything about cystic fibrosis to start with, I mean, I would have diagnosed her myself. She had all the classic symptoms and was very, very severe with them. Um, she was feeding constantly, but not gaining weight. She was a small birth weight to begin with, but feeding constantly, always hungry, always passing bowel motions, not gaining weight. Um, she seemed to be severely malnourished. Her skin was actually peeling off her like a snake Aww. almost shedding her skin. It was really traumatic, to be honest, for us because we just didn't know what could possibly be the cause. And she had this constant wheeze, this constant whistle. Um, so as I said, I just kept driving back into the maternity hospital. So they're like, get this woman out of here. And they were running... Um, blood tests and at one point they thought it might be something got to do with her thyroid and there was various, various theories going around but none of them were the correct one until we got the phone call um, from Temple Street. She had raised IRT levels which is the marker they look for in newborn screening and once those levels are raised you're told that your child either has CF or is a carrier, one or the other. It kind of flags in those instances. But of course, once we got the phone call that she had to go in for a sweat test and we, you know, consulted Google, <laughs> we knew we were only going in to have it confirmed because once we read about it, I mean, she was she was kind of textbook, the issues she was having, which was really sad because on top of the fact that it's actually just really sad to get a diagnosis, you know, you hear of other people who maybe 
aren't picked up till later. They're not that symptomatic. And I suppose what killed me at the time was that she was so symptomatic, so young that I was very worried about the level of severity that she was, you know, likely looking at. Although I was equally appreciative that she'd been picked up so young that we could instantly start treating her. And in some ways, I suppose I had been so anxious and so head up trying to figure out what was wrong with her that in some ways the diagnosis was a relief just to know that we could start to help her because just as a mum, you know, you feel so helpless when you can see so many things wrong in front of your eyes, but you don't know what's the cause or how can you help? So it was a really difficult time. At least we we kind of felt we had a plan of action then and that we could do something to help her. Absolutely. And I think too, I, I wondered those three weeks before you got that call up from newborn screening, were the doctors and nurses believing you were trying to figure it out or? Yeah, it was a funny one. I suppose, um, you know, new mums sadly sometimes get kind of questioned, oh, is it hormones or you're just anxious or whatever. But I suppose the fact that I wasn't a first time parent, I did feel I was being taken seriously. I did wonder if the same thing had happened on my first child, would I necessarily have been taken as seriously? But I mean, to me, it was really obvious there was something like very badly wrong. I did kind of fear the extent of of what we were looking at. Um, And the maternity hospital, in fairness, they did see us every time they went in and they ran tests and reassured us that they were looking for the cause. So from that point of view, we were supported. But it was a very long three and a half weeks. Very, very long. Absolutely. And there's three years between your son, Danny, and Eva. So you had three years of parenting. Yeah. Because when my first child was diagnosed, they did say, you're a first time mom, go back to work, you're crazy. Yeah, you know, yeah so. there is a bit of that, unfortunately. You know, you, you hear that they often write down on charts FTP, you know, first time parent as a kind of a flag, expect, you know, this person to be maybe highly strong. And it's not fair. I think the one thing I've learned over the course of the last 13 years as a parent is that there's no substitute for mum's gut instinct. And I don't know about you, but for me, it's never been wrong. When you feel in your body and you feel in your gut that there's something wrong or something being missed, you're invariably right. Always. Yeah. I mean, we are always right. I have to say, it's not this boasting thing. It's just the truth. Yeah. And you might not know exactly what it is, but you just know something's not right and I need you to find it. Right. And it's important to to listen to that, right? Because, you know, it's your body trying to tell you something. Right. And for moms, first time or not, to listen to themselves and not be pushed off by someone else. Because you really do have to listen to your gut, wouldn't you agree? Yeah, absolutely. And I suppose, you know, we can be hypercritical of ourselves and we talk so much about anxiety now. And and while it's true that it's a factor, we also just need to be really careful not to talk ourselves out of things that we're worried about, which is a negative consequence in the other direction, whereby, you know, you're kind of consumed by self-doubt and somehow talk yourself out of an issue you know, so it's just to be careful and for mums to, OK, like be objective, look at the situation, try and analyse it with a level head where you can. But at the same time, if you feel something's wrong, it probably is, you know. Mm-hmm. And how do they handle once there's a diagnosis? Do they gather all the family in a room? What kind of situation? How do things go from the confirmation of the diagnosis? 
So it all happened for us in the same day. So uh, we went into Temple Street Children's Hospital for a sweat test and we met a nurse called Sharon, who's still our nurse to this day. She's amazing. I adore her. But um, she brought us down for the test and then we had a period to wait, but we were brought up to one of the clinic rooms upstairs to wait. Um, And so either way, you were getting the results that day. And so we met the full multidisciplinary team on the same day um, that Eva got her diagnosis. So they introduced us to the physios, the nurses, dietitian, consultants. So it was really overwhelming, but also really reassuring that you had got all of these people in your corner now, having gone from, oh my God, please listen to me, <laughs> to this room full of experts. Um, there was a reassurance in that, even though it was also mildly terrifying when you realised what that meant in terms of the scale of the challenge you were clearly looking at if you needed to meet all of these people immediately. And the amount of information that was being thrown at you was, oh God, it, you know, I'm sure you remember, it's, it's kind of sickening. But at the same time, you know, you're appreciative that that team is there and like Eva, I remember, had a bit of a dodgy stomach, I think, the next day. And they started around Cree on that day. And obviously we weren't sure if that was linked or not. But we went into the emergency department the next day and the consultant met us there and made sure that she was taken care of and explained the situation to staff in the ED. And I suppose you just don't get that level of care as standard. And we have found the whole way through our journey with CF that our team have really, really had our backs from day one. They're an incredible group of people in what can be a very challenging health service in this country. The care that we get from that team is exceptional. That is fantastic. And I know you're very involved and that Ireland has a small community of people with cystic fibrosis. How do you feel as a mom? How do you and your husband feel about access to medications and just how um, CF is handled in Ireland? So generally, I mean, we're in a pretty good position here. We do have access to kind of all of the standard CF medications on what's called the LTI or the long-term illness program here. So it's a card that you get um, when your child is diagnosed with CF and it's available for some other illnesses as well. Um, And it means that anything that's prescribed why your consultant is covered cost-wise. Um, the vertex modulators were another kind of scenario where they didn't automatically go through. And we had a, a big fight on our hands initially to get access to them. And that was really, really tough. Um, now, or Cambi and Caftrio, as we call it, Trikafta to you, are available now free of charge to patients, which is, to eligible patients, obviously, um, which is incredible. But it was a hard slog. I mean, the cost of those medications was, it was difficult to get it passed. And with such a small, even though we have the highest rate of cystic fibrosis in the world, I suppose numbers wise, it's still a small cohort. So it was challenging to get those through. And we did have to mount a huge, very public campaign here to get access to our Canby. Uh, thankfully, that led to a 10-year deal, which meant that those that were already approved for Cambi were automatically approved for Caftrio when it came online. But because my daughter's genetics were outside of the remit for Cambi, she was part of a group that had to be renegotiated for uh, when Caftrio came online. So unfortunately, there was another fight 
and another delay for 35 children who had kind of um, rarer genes, but ones that were eligible for CAFTRIO. So I suppose overall we're luckier than a lot of the world's. But I would say some of that luck has been hard earned, <laughs> if that makes sense, as in it's a small but vocal community and we kind of don't lie down. And that is the CF community, right? Right. You know, we have really got it together and we stay in contact with each other, even in different countries. And I wonder there, so we have 40,000 people in the U.S. and I'm sure it's much higher because people of color are underdiagnosed. But of that, 90 percent approximately can take the CF modulators, but there's still the 10% that cannot. What is that statistic in Ireland? I'm not sure. Um, I think it's 5 to 10% here also. I'm not sure what the numbers would be, but I know, say, in our hospital, I think all of our maybe one or two patients are currently covered by modulators or will be eligible for them when they come of age. So it is a very small number, but it's, God, it's so important to remember those people, because I remember when Orkambi came along and, you know, knowing that Eva couldn't have it and deciding, you know, we're going all in and we're fighting for this to everyone else's benefit and to try and make sure that this level of fight doesn't happen again when the next modulator came along and we knew that we should be eligible for the next one. But I remember how heart wrenching that experience was seeing other people thriving and being so thrilled for them, but equally so devastated for your own child. And now that, you know, 90% of MCF patients have access to this, it's so easy for people to be so thrilled with their new existence that that 10% is forgotten about. And it's really important that that kind of mantra and belief of all in it together stays true until we go the distance for the final 10% because it must be a very devastating feeling to be kind of left without a modulator while the rest of the patients move on. It's um, it's so unfair. Right. And, you know, and I just did a podcast with Will Corcoran, who could not go on Trikafta. And then, of course, I've talked to others as well. And even my youngest, Emily, had a reaction the first okay. time and had to be off it for two years. And I remember holding my breath thinking, oh, my gosh, when can she get back on yeah. or when can we try her? So I can't imagine for people who it's not even an option to try. You know, you're just waiting. I mean, there are things coming down the pike, so to speak, and there is a lot of hope, but I cannot wait until we have something for everyone. Exactly. How is Eva doing um, now that she's on CAF Trio? Is that She can probably tell by the huge smile on my face that she <laughs> is. A brand new child since she started it. It's like I'd read all the success stories and, you know, like that you're in groups online with communities from across the globe. And we're always looking to the States because you guys have access to stuff a lot sooner than us. And you're reading the stories and you have goosebumps and you're hoping and hoping, but you're still so afraid that like that there'll be a reaction or that the liver enzymes will go too high. And you just, it's almost this fear of hope that you have. It's like, oh my God, could it be too good to be true? But thankfully, Eva is absolutely flying on it. I mean, she has just always had the tetchiest lungs I have ever imagined. Like she had uh, kind of asthmatic airways, like no matter how many nebulizers you would do, there would still be mucus. I mean, you just want to hang her upside down and shake it out. 
Um, just very, very severe symptoms. She also has or had, I say had, she still has it, but it's it's resolved a little bit as she's grown a bronchomalacia, so a floppy airway, which didn't obviously help things. And she had to wear a CPAP at night for a long time, which was really, you know, she did it because she knew she had to. But obviously that's very traumatic for a small child. And those things are, they're gone. Wow. Like she she sleeps without a CPAP. We're down to one nebulizer a day. She still carries her rescue Ventolin with her, but she hasn't had to take since she started Caftrio. Um, and I literally wake up every day and pinch myself, A, that I've slept all night, we all have, with no coughing, and B, that it's it's real because it's everything we ever dreamed of, but it's actually happening. It's just, it's incredible to think that we're living through that time where those medications exist, not for everyone yet, but for so many, we're just, we're grateful for the time she was born, I guess. And in some ways I look at other families and kids who have been born since and if they are eligible, you know, they're so lucky that they hopefully won't know the CF of old for us, but in other ways, I feel partly grateful to have experienced the other side of it because you know what it means when you've lived the severe end of it and can now see the change. So you just, you don't take it for granted. You remember like it was yesterday, all those emergency trips to the hospital. I'd call an ambulance for Eva once and like it was four, five, six years ago now. And it's just, I can bring the entire experience to mind in a, in a split second. It was so harrowing and just so unjust for a young child to go through it. And, and so many families have experienced the same. So I suppose having gone through those horrible experiences and had that fear of where it was all going to end, I just can't express the level of, I suppose, gratitude for where we are now. To see Eva go swimming, which I was always afraid of because of the water. She plays Gaelic football. She can keep up with her friends. We can go for walks. Like they're small things to other people, but like things we were just never able to do before. I remember bringing her for a walk down our road and having to carry her home because she just wasn't able, you know, her lungs weren't able. So Mm -hmm. that's a very long winded answer and a bit gushing, but it's just, you know, it's just incredible to see the turnaround that has come with that medication. It's phenomenal. And for anyone that doesn't know, the concern in water is bacteria. Yeah. And that is a huge concern. And I also think when this modulator came out, they were talking about it takes it from a CF, from a deadly disease to a chronic illness. I mean, our kids do still get sick on occasion, but it's night and day as far as their health, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I think we all still know not to be complacent, but your risk-benefit analysis changes. So it's not that there are no risks, there absolutely are. And picking up a cold or a virus could still lead to a problem, but it won't definitely lead to a problem. And I think that's the difference. So sometimes now we get colds and we might go under with them, but a lot of times we get them and we don't. So you're just, I think your analysis of risk and benefit changes because previously every single exposure to a sickness led to a huge problem here. Um, now it occasionally does, but generally doesn't. So you just assess everything slightly differently, but you obviously still have your no goes. <laughs> you know, there's things we'll still never risk. And if you're you're going into swimming pools, you know, you are checking that those waters are treated properly and, and all the rest, but it's not a flat no anymore. Like I remember Eva growing 
um, Pseudomonas. And I had uh, like a good few years ago for the first time. And I had been like neurotic about avoiding water, soil, you know, scared of mushrooms or not mushrooms, onions that were rotting. Like you just, all the things. All that bacteria. All the bacteria. And I remember just being so devastated that despite never, ever, 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 ever taking a risk. I mean, I was so careful that she could still grow it. And now you go, now you're seeing the benefits of swimming for the lungs versus the potential risk. So you're still careful about where you do things, but you kind of have the the privilege of looking at the benefits now, whereas before I could just never get past the risks. So we're still careful, but, you know, she can live a lot more than she used to be able to. So it's nice to see her kind of thriving and doing more normal things. Absolutely. And it was things as simple as my girls were like, you can never cut an onion. Don't ever cut an onion. You know, that was that fear Yeah, from that and so many other things that now it's like you can definitely breathe easier about things that they're doing. Yeah. How has Eva's mental health changed? Has it had an impact since she's been on the modulator? No, in terms of any negative changes, I know that they're reported. Side no, is it better? You meant the other way. Yeah, sorry, it's hard to know because I know some people talk about it in a, in a negative context right. as, a, as a kind of a negative side effect. No, I mean, she's a she's a lighter child in terms of, you know, her ability to just get out and do stuff. But I have to say she has been an inspiration to me all along because she just seemed to be born with this kind of can-do resilient kind of way about her where she just always accepted explanations for why we did things certain ways and she went along with them and like in a manner that I'm so grateful for I mean you know you go into the hospital to do blood tests or whatever and she has her favorite phlebotomist she just holds out her arm she doesn't flinch like she does things in a manner that you know would put most grown-ups to shame and I've been really blessed in that, that she hasn't pushed back on treatments and she's always accepted things. So from that point of view, she's always had a very positive mental attitude anyway. Now I think the difference is just that she doesn't have to think as deeply about everything she does. And that's nice. That's what I mean about that kind of lightness that just that she can kind of just react to things more normally. And that's beautiful to see where I have seen a a change, not necessarily in her, but her older brother you know, he's gone into secondary school now, so high school, but they were in primary school together um, in a mixed school. And I felt he was heavy. I felt he was a little bit weighed down by it because when I wasn't there, you know, almost like he was in charge of looking out for her. And I would say there has been a huge change for him mentally. Like Eva was doing a neb. We were away for a couple of days over the summer and she was doing a neb and he actually looked at her and he said, do you still do that? <laughs> and she does one every single day. But that's how, I suppose, how little he sees CF first now that he hadn't really noticed. Whereas previously, it seemed to be CF got in the way, it got in the way of everything and it got in the way of everybody's mental health. So I can see a change across the family, not just with Eva, perhaps more so with others, actually. Wow, that is a beautiful thing and a great story and a great thing for other people to hear because I think it is easier because I have two kids with CF. They're dealing with the same things. They get it. Yeah. I think it is 
harder or who knows, maybe it's not fair to compare, but maybe it is harder for siblings who have one child with CF and one without. And, you know, there's a lot of guilt and everything. Yeah, I often felt that, you know, it was very hard for Danny and especially, I suppose, because we just have two children. So it's one with and one without. And I often thought, well, maybe if there was loads of them or there was three of them, that it wasn't just one with and one without. I did. And again, it's the mom guilt, right? You just always, you just always feel bad. We just were, (laughs) we're designed that way. But you're always worried about somebody and, you know, she would have needed so much time um, and attention given to her treatments. And then you're always paranoid that he felt left out. Um, and then, like, what can you do at the same time you're trying to explain to him how lucky he is? And then you're trying to figure out just how to manage everybody, how to make sure everyone gets the time and love that they need, albeit that they need different things. So that kind of change in the mood of the household um, is really special and just feels so different, um, you know, and it's it's lovely to see him now thriving as well. It's like he has a weight off as well, which is which is gorgeous. It is. And just for anyone listening who may not be aware, there are some mental health issues that some people are having. And that's what you thought I was asking yeah. you initially. Um, and that is true. We don't want to like, you know, put that under the rug or anything or not address it. Some people are having some severe mental um, challenges that they believe is related to CAFTRIO TRICAFTA in the U.S. Um, so I know there's research being done on that. So yeah. we just wanted to mention that as well. Um, and then moving on to so you started the Salty Pen, your business, right? Yeah. <laughs> obviously off the theme of cystic fibrosis? Yeah, exactly. So I had worked um, for about 15 years or so in various advertising agencies in Dublin. So um, I'm a copywriter. That's kind of what I've always done since I left college. But it's a very demanding, uh, unforgiving industry with very long hours. And I did reach a point where I felt home life was suffering too much in the sense that it, it wasn't. I, I was theoretically holding it together, but was completely burning myself out to the extent that driving home in the car from work every day, I would just spend the journey crying and hoping nobody was looking at me like it was horrendous. Um, just trying to hold, up, hold all ends together and feeling like you're failing at everything, even though other people seem to think you were succeeding at all of it. And you just felt no, not at all. And the the final, I suppose, nail for me was I was on a work trip and we had to go to Rotterdam, I think it was, to present to Unilever. And we had an early flight out that morning and Eva had started with cold symptoms the day before. And I got up early that morning and my, my mom had come up to to mind the kids and to get my son out while I went to the airport and my husband went to work and I just didn't like the look of her that morning. I was like, this is going to escalate now when I'm gone. I was only going for one night. But we went in uh, later that day and did our presentation. I checked my phone as soon as we came out of the meeting and my husband said he was in the emergency department with Eva. And I was like, that's it. I'm done. I'm done trying to please everybody. I'm just at my wits end. The only place I want to be is with her and with my family and nothing is worth this stress of trying to keep it all going. So, I mean, I'm lucky in the sense that what I do can be done in other ways. So I decided to start up the Salty Pen. So I still I still do that copywriting job, but I can now do it on my own terms so I can work directly with clients or I do also do some kind of consistent work with a Dublin agency. But again, 
it's when I can <laughs> and you're not kind of left feeling like you're looking for force majeure days if things go wrong or it just gives a kind of a, a sense of independence and control over your time while still managing to work. So it's been a great thing for me. And I guess it's probably something I always say Eva's been kind of amazing for me in that it's something that I probably would have loved to do anyway, but she pushed me and, you know, you're like, right, okay, you're the priority here. How are we going to reinvent this that you're getting what you need, but we can still work and, you know, pay the bills and all the rest. So the salty pen was born out of that situation and definitely the best move I've ever made uh, for myself, but born out of crisis, but grateful in the sense that it worked and, and has given us a much better kind of life work balance overall. And that's wonderful. And I looked on your work site, of course, and oh my gosh, the Guinness audio, is it an audio commercial or radio commercial or, or something? Oh, the radio spots at Rooker Harrer. Yeah, <laughs> the rain. We're going to play that one here <laughs> for everybody. It's about a minute long. It's fabulous. Surprise. It's raining again. Why must these drops be so persistent? Don't clouds ever take a holiday? Are they pouring on purpose because they know you haven't got an umbrella? Complain about the rain and it just gets worse. Can someone turn off the tap, please? I'll take that as a no, shall I? Still, don't let it dampen your spirits. There's one thing that is reliable in spite of the weather. The sound of a can of Guinness opening. Just sit back and watch it pour. Guinness. It's alive inside. Enjoy Guinness sensibly. Visit drinkaware.ie. Thank you. Thank you so much. We went to Amsterdam to record that with um, Rutger when he was around to work with us. Uh, so that was, yeah, look, it was an amazing, amazing job. Get to travel loads, but uh, you reach a point where you have to just change things up. <laughs> and anybody who enjoys a Guinness is going to love that little spot. It's <laughs> So good. I listened to just about all of them, but the rain one was my favorite <laughs> one. But it's so great. And Thank it, you. And it's so healthy for us as moms to still be working and doing something we love, right? It's so important. It is. I think you can you can completely lose yourself in your caring role. And while you do want to give all of yourself to it, for your own mental health, it is important that you have something else and it's all about finding that balance isn't it where you can do something else but not to the extent that you feel like you're making sacrifices at home or that anybody's missing out on something they need so I think as moms that the biggest challenge is always finding that balance where you have something for yourself aside from the practical end of needing to earn money and pay bills but something for yourself and another part of yourself that's not just mum or just caregiver um, I think that's important for our own mental health. And we do probably tend to put our own mental health last. I think as mothers, we're always so concerned about how everyone else is feeling and how everyone else is doing. And we tend to come bottom of the pile. But I suppose I've kind of learned that if you can kind of reinvent a little, you can still manage to keep all parts of yourself. It just takes a little bit of creativity. <laughs> Absolutely. And what are your hopes for the future of cystic fibrosis in Ireland and, you know, around the world? I just hope we get to a point where that kind of elation and relief that we're feeling now is a feeling that everyone experiences. I really just want to see my child 
your daughter is anyone who's living with cystic fibrosis just get that opportunity to live a full and long life you know and to just get out there and embrace the world and like you can taste the hope there's so much and so much has changed in the 10 years since Eva was born and I've no doubt that that's only the beginning I know there's you know tweaking to be done with the medications in terms of side effects and I know there's another version of it in clinical trials as we speak and I just hope that we keep pushing and that nobody says okay well CF has improved so that's great <laughs> and then forget about it like we just need to keep pushing we're we're so close to completely changing what cystic fibrosis means but we're not there yet there are you know as we talked about there are that 10% of patients who who still need something to help them and we just need to keep pushing and I think sometimes when so many advancements have been made you nearly or you can start feeling a little bit guilty about pushing your agenda or asking for fundraising because you're aware that things have improved so much but it is important to keep up that momentum I think and and push further and and harder and and go all the way with it um you know I just want to see my child and other people's children live a, a full and and happy life where that's not their main focus and I think it's so beautifully said by you. That was just the perfect way to end this podcast. And I think that's why it was so important. I was so excited to talk to you and to Rory, other another you know CF parent in Ireland, and to talk to people around the world because it doesn't matter where we are. We are thinking the same things. We have the same concerns. Everything is the same in regard to CF. We saw the symptoms before we initiated the diagnosis. I mean, as moms, we can completely connect. It's really um, a small CF community and wonderful community. Yeah, I have to say, I always say, sorry for cutting across you, and I know you're, you're rapping, but I always say that the people I've met through Eva's diagnosis are the most amazing people I wish I never had to meet. But the gorgeous people that have come into our lives as a result of something that, you know, isn't a nice thing and is a huge challenge. But oh my goodness, the incredible people that you meet along the way. And I do love that sense of caring and support that just ripples through our community here, but also spreads out globally. I mean, you know, you manage to seek out parents in other countries who kids have the same mutations as you and you go, you know, just there is this connection and this kind of magnetic draw between people. And I love that support. And I, I really hope that continues. It's something really special. And I think that what you just said is something we also always think. And that's why I think our kids are so similar to their thought process of being smart and being like they will do anything to stay healthy and having this motivation. Even my girls have said, and we've talked about this, CF is a blessing, which others would find very strange to say, but it's because of the CF community and it's because we have a, a new appreciation for life, right? We just embrace it, I feel like, so much more. So I hear everything you're saying and thank you so much for uh, talking with us on this podcast. No problem. Thank you for having me. It's been an absolute pleasure. The original music in this podcast is performed by Kevin it's Allen, not complicated. who happens to have cystic we fibrosis. We all got our worries and fears. I know what's got you frustrated, but loving you is so alright. This has been the Living with Cystic Fibrosis podcast. For more information and to learn more about the Bonnell Foundation, 
visit our website at thebonnellfoundation.org. That's the B-O-N-N-E-L-L foundation.org. This podcast was sponsored by Beatrice, Genentech, and Vertex. It was produced by Jag and Detroit Podcasts. Follow our show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening right now.